Friends, we are reaching the end of our Advent journey together. Christmas is just around the corner. My wife and I have learned a new tradition this year called keep the toddler away from the Christmas tree and the presents. I assume that some of you are aware of that. Very uh, skilled in that practice. Not all of our journeys, though, this Advent have been the same. Just as the journeys of all those who visited Christ many years ago were not the same either. But wherever you are in your journey toward Christ, keep in mind that the journey to Christ is one that ends with transformation. And if I know anything about transformation, it's that no one is prepared for it. So we have lit candles to remind us of the hope, peace, and joy which we believe God makes possible through the miracle of Christmas. Hoping and praying that they will prepare us for the kind of transformation that awaits us all when Christ is born into our lives. Today we have lit the candle reminding us of God's love for the world. Our text this morning is Matthew 11 verses 2 through 6. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, speak now your liberating and reconciling word and give us the grace to hear and obey it so that we might be faithful witnesses to the love which is revealed in Jesus Christ, which you have made known to us through the miracle of miracles on Christmas morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My friend Adam had a knack for asking very simple, kind of embarrassingly simple questions during our time in seminary. I hesitate to call them dumb questions because I really want to believe that dumb questions don't exist, but these were the kind of questions that made me wonder, Adam, have you been paying attention at all in class? At first, as you can imagine, this was really frustrating. And then it came to be surprising to me because as I got to know Adam quite well, I learned that he was actually very smart. So one day after I had known him for a little while, so you need to know someone a little while before you ask the question I asked, I asked him, Adam, you know how you kind of ask dumb questions in class? Why do you do that? He was a year ahead of me in the program, and he told me that one of the things he learned in his first year in seminary is that in any given class, almost everyone has the same question, but no one wants to be the first to ask it. He said it's, very, it's, it's typically a very simple question, but it has to be asked. And everyone just sits there with anxiety, a ball of anxiety in their stomach, waiting for someone else 
to ask it. I hope I've painted a compelling reason for you to go to seminary one day. (laughs) But maybe some of you have experienced this before. Adam told me that one of the things he hated about seminary most was that no one was willing to ask simple, embarrassing questions, pretending instead to already know the answer. Not only did he find this incredibly inauthentic, he also knew it would hurt the future of the church if pastors were not given a safe space in which they were able to ask embarrassing, maybe dumb questions. So he decided that his gift to our seminary community would be the first one to ask the simple questions. This is not only true of seminaries. This is true of churches as well. Many of us come each week to church on Sunday with the same question, but no one wants to be the first to ask it. We're all worried that if we ask a simple question, that people will look at us like we haven't been paying attention. So it's a relief when someone asks our question, isn't it? And it's usually better when it's the brightest person in the room or the person who we think has it all together. Because if that person, the person who we think has it all together, asks that question, then maybe we won't feel as confused or silly, alone in our curiosity. In our text for this morning, which we have just read, John the Baptist asks Jesus our question. Are you the one who is to come Or are we going to have to wait for someone else? This is a question that I assume each one of us has asked at some point in our life. Maybe you're asking it right now. Jesus, are you for real? Are you really going to do the thing that you said that you are going to do? Does your arrival mean anything more than a commercialized holiday season which leaves me stressed and exhausted and allergic to my Christmas tree. Someone knows what that's about. (laughs) This seems like a really good time for you and I to be asking this question. It's a question especially relevant to us while we are on this Advent journey together. And I hope that you hear in John's question the deep longing of Israel for a Messiah. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting And waiting is not easy. And while we wait, we sometimes doubt. And we sometimes forget what it is we're waiting for. But this question, like Adam's questions, is a gift. Because if John the Baptist is the one asking this question, I don't feel nearly as bad about all the times I wonder whether or not Jesus is for real. Whether or not Jesus is going to show up in my life like he said he would. But it is an odd question because John the Baptist is the one asking it. We might wonder what changed for John. If you remember, John was the one, he was the key witness to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. From the time of his birth, his calling was clear to make known Christ's ministry to the world. He had baptized Jesus. He had witnessed the Spirit of God descend on Jesus. So for John, to question Jesus is to question his own ministry, his own calling. Maybe you understand John's question 
because you too have been in a kind of prison. Maybe you've been living in the prison of grief. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe you've lost a relationship. Or you're in the process of losing one or the other. Maybe you've been living in the prison of shame. Maybe you've done something. You've made some mistake. You've given way to some addiction. And you just don't quite know yourself apart from it anymore. Maybe it's the prison of doubt which keeps you from experiencing the joy of following and knowing Christ. Whatever the prison, all prisons make us wonder the same thing. Jesus, are you for real? Do we have to wait for someone else? Are you going to show up in my life like you said that you would? There's another reason that led John to question whether or not Jesus was really the one Israel had been waiting for. You see, Jesus' ministry was different than John's ministry, and it was different than John expected Jesus' ministry to be. There's evidence in Matthew's gospel that John and Jesus had had some disagreement over certain interpretations of the law. Jesus didn't require his disciples to fast nearly as frequently as John And Jesus was doing this weird thing, like befriending known sinners and tax collectors. This had earned Jesus a reputation, which John worried did not line up with John's preaching, message of repentance. So not only is John imprisoned, evaluating whether or not his ministry really counted, he's confused, actually, about Christ's mission, which was to reveal God's love for the world. We know what this is like, too, I think. We would rather Jesus' ministry line up with our own version of ministry, whatever that may be. And yet Jesus loves sinners we would rather avoid or pass off to someone else. He includes people we would rather exclude for whatever reason that we have to exclude them. He tells us to love our enemies and to be peacemakers. Jesus does not tolerate shaming other people. And he has little time for religious pretense or spiritual entertainment. So it's not just our imprisonment which causes us to fear whether or not Jesus is for real. It's his mission of sacrificial love, which, which we're afraid isn't really all that realistic. I think to ourselves, Jesus, that's, that's not going to work for the world in which I live. But Jesus says, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. You can imagine John sitting there thinking, okay, okay, that sounds great. I'm still in jail, Jesus. So while it may not have been what John was hoping to hear while sitting in a prison cell, this is entirely consistent with what Christ's mission of revealing God's love has always been about. Since day one. If you know anything about writing, you know it is much harder to show than it is to tell. If you've ever had a careful editor, I'm sure you've most certainly heard, you're telling me too much, I need you to show me. It is the most frustrating thing to hear back from an editor. This is uh, what I primarily struggled with in grad school when I was learning to write. And I assume other people struggle with it as well because it's much easier to tell than it is to show. 
Building an argument with evidence is much more difficult to do than to simply state your own interpretation of the facts. But it is almost always more persuasive to show than to tell. The love of God which Jesus Christ reveals to us is the showing kind of love, not the telling. It would have been much easier for Jesus to tell John, yes, I'm Jesus. You should know you've been telling everyone that I am. But it would not have been much help to us. Jesus shows us what love looks like. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. This is what love looks like. And then he invites John and us to make a decision. Decide for yourself if I'm the one that you have been waiting for. In a recent interview, author Brene Brown shared her belief that God is love and Jesus is what love looks like in the flesh. She goes on to say, Jesus makes complete sense to me because if you tried to express love to human beings and just came down and said, I am love, love each other. Because we're so afraid of hard things, we would automatically go to unicorns and rainbows. So you would have to send someone to show what love in the flesh looks like. Otherwise, we would romanticize it. We would make it easy. But Jesus comes and says, I am love. I sit with the people you're not allowed to talk to. I do all the hard things. I make all the hard choices. I love the people that are unlovable. I feed the people who are not supposed to be taken care of. I'm love. And it's hard and messy and dirty. And if you really love, I mean like fierce, big love, you'll become dangerous to people. And so there's no way most of us could understand what love is without seeing what love looks like. God is love and Jesus is what love looks like in the flesh. We get a little picture of that this morning through this text. This is the good news of the gospel and the glory of Christmas, which we have been waiting and preparing for during this Advent season. But friends, while we have been waiting, maybe God has been waiting for us to join in Christ's mission to reveal God's love to the world, to show, not just tell, of our love for all people, and of God's love for all people, stranger and friend, neighbor and enemy. After all, God's love's not something we're really ever allowed to hoard for ourselves. And it's not something that just a certain few get. Maybe the people we like or the people who look or think like we do. The love of God is for the whole world. The whole world. And when it is practiced... People are healed. Relationships are mended. What is dead is made alive. And the poor, who are accustomed to hearing bad news, hear good news for a change. This is what love looks like. You might be thinking, with perhaps very good reason, is this kind of love even possible in the world in which I live? Don't you think that you're being kind of naive, John? I mean, how do I practice this kind of dangerous love that Christ calls me to practice in a world beset by violence and terror? 
In just the past few months, we have been reminded of all of the things and all of the people that we are supposed to be afraid of. This is what terrorism does. It terrorizes us. But we cannot let fear get in the way of our love. I'm not talking about the kind of fear that's productive, which allows us to be creative, to improve our life together. The kind of fear that allows us to be wise and which protects us from being foolish. I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I'm talking about the kind of fear that leads to hatred of the other, which poisons our souls and paralyzes us. This is the kind of fear which produces racism and oppression. This is the kind of fear that has led to hate crimes to Muslim Americans to triple in the last month. This is the only cure for this kind of fear, Martin Luther King Jr. tells us, is a combination of courage and love. We need the courage to love because, as Brene Brown says, when we think of love, our tendency is to go to unicorns and rainbows to stuffed animals. But courage is the determination not to be overwhelmed by our fears, not to run away when things get difficult, not to retreat when we get uncomfortable, hoping instead that God's love will transform our fears into faith and God's redemptive work in our midst, which always heals the broken, mends the sick, brings life from death. That's what God's work is all about. The New Testament reminds us that perfect love casts out fear. So whenever we join Christ's mission and we reflect Christ's love for the broken and the needy, the marginalized and the other, the stranger and the enemy, the sick, the dying, the suffering, whenever we practice love in these arenas, we drive out fear from our own lives and from the lives of our community. This is the kind of transformation which awaits us on Christmas morning. This is indeed the true miracle of Christmas, to transform our crippling fear into dangerous love. We have dared this morning to light this candle to remind us that this love is indeed possible because of Christ's arrival. And while we wait for his coming again, let us prepare ourselves for what God will do in us and through us so that our doubts do not overwhelm us and so that we do not forget what we are waiting for. My friends, while we are waiting for hope, let us practice justice. While we are waiting for peace, let us forgive our enemies. While we are waiting for joy, let us practice gratitude. And while we are waiting for love, let us courageously love our neighbors. Amen.